is Justin White. This is episode 104. And my guest is my new friend, Mike Lavella. And um, we had never met before. Mike is a friend of Paul, who is a friend of my brother's. And I had barely met Paul before we spoke uh, back in episode 96 when it was called Outspoken. Um, So Mike and I got to uh, talk for the first time right here in this episode. And for me, that's part of what's fun and exciting about doing this. Uh, When I, sometimes I talk to an old friend and I know a lot about them and it's, that's cool too because we can skip over a lot of the you know, getting to know you stuff and get to the meat, but then sometimes, you know, that's gross. I don't like that I just said meat. Uh, by the way, something you should know about me. Uh, well, I don't know if you should know it. You're about to know it. I don't like when people say, use words to describe things that aren't those things, uh, especially when they're food related, even though I just did it. Uh, For instance, when you say, oh, that's delicious, but you're not talking about food. You're using a food-related word to talk about something else. Ooh, creeps me out. I have friends who do it, and I love them, but that part I love less. I love that little tiny part a little bit less. Um, Anyway, as I was saying, uh, when I'm talking to a guest and we don't know anything about each other. That's also fun and exciting and mysterious and interesting uh, because I really have no idea what's going to happen or where the conversation's going to go. And um, I love that. And I always learn something from every person I talk to. So that's pretty great. Uh, So I learned a lot from Mike, and let's uh, get a talking to him. You're you're talking to a guy with no kids, no wife, no, I don't own a plant. You know what I mean? Like you're talking to a guy who I, I have worked for decades to get rid of any possible annoyance or distraction so that's amazing that's a that's quite a feat not even it is one plant uh well i the neighbor left a few uh when they moved and i i water them on sunday i use when i'm on my way to work uh and i and and they're alive still so but they're not my i mean they're technically not my plants you know right but i water them and they're still alive so it's like a bamboo it's like bamboo. How can you hurt that? You know what I mean? So it's like, put water in it. And then it just, you know, it's fine, I think. But no, I don't, you know, I, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't have any, there's no, there's nothing. There's no, there's no ex-wives. There's no. That's amazing. Was that, it, was that intentional? It need to be dropped off anywhere. There's no, there's just nothing, you know. I envy you for that part. It's just me and my records, you know, so. Nice. So yeah. was that was that intentional? Was that a strategy to? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if I met somebody who didn't annoy me, I would 
I'd go out with them, you know, or, you know, I mean, I've, I've had lots of very, I mean, I was married at one point. I, I was engaged for years at one point. I had one girlfriend that was eight years who lived with me. One who was seven years who lived with me. Another one was five. Another one was three. So wow. yeah, there's been, I mean, I'm 56. There's been, it's, it's been pretty continuous, but the last three were just, you know, challenging. I had one after another, you know. Do you think that's, do you, I, I'm just curious if that's because, do you feel like you're becoming less tolerant as you get older? Uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm more, I think I'm more set up to be romantic and lovely and, oh, and tolerant nice. more than ever, actually. But, well, that's cool. but I had a hell of a, I just had a bad run. I had a bipolar girlfriend and then I had a, like a world's cheapest millionaire girlfriend uh, <laughs> who was also really depressed. And then I had a, uh, the last one was just, just an alcoholic and cra- just really bad, you know, just hit everything. And then when you start to peel the onion, just the horror, you know, so, yes. uh, and that really put me off, you know, like everything's 2019 at the beginning, I'm like, man, I'm taking a break. And then, and then COVID hit, you know, and then, so I haven't had a girlfriend for a couple of years, which is never the last time I could say that was 1979, you know, so it's like, you know, so, but you know, I, you know, I work at Kaiser now I'm a, I'm a guard and we worked at COVID screening line and I work with, you know, pretty much nothing, but you know, LVNs and nurses and MAs Mm -hmm. and just like, you know, women of all kind of all ages, you know, from probably about 18 or 19 up to women who were older than me and, like to a woman, they're always just like, I can't believe you're not married. You know, <laughs> I can't believe somebody hasn't snagged you up. You know, I hear that all the time. And then when they get to know me a little bit, they're like, you are so picky. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, no, but I, I just have a couple of rules. And they are no kids, no dogs, can't be on medication. And you think that would be simple, but apparently that's. I've eliminated 99.9% of all women when you do that, you know, just those three qualifications. Yeah. And, and I'm not even like, I don't care, man, black, Asian. I don't care. I could care less about race or, I mean, they couldn't be like a Trump supporter, obviously that would, you know, I'd be, I'd be vomiting the entire time. You know. Yeah. That's but, a deal breaker. Yes. Yeah, it's ultimate deal breaker. But, um, because that would just be like, well, I mean, that, that would say so much else about her character. Right. So, totally. And, and, you know, so you just wouldn't date someone like that, but I, I don't know any. So I, I think I know four people that vote and, you know, and I know thousands of people. So I'm so, and that's another thing I've done a good job of is get, get here on the left coast and really, you know, really get in, get right in yeah. there. You know, so there's yeah. no, you know, I really Entrench don't have yourself. any kind of, yeah. You know, that, that whole, that whole thing got left behind there, you know? And of course my friends, I'm from Pittsburgh, you know, like Paul, I'm from Pittsburgh. And um, I was born in McKeesport, which is the birthplace of Andy Warhol, actually, you know? Oh, cool. And yeah, and so it's me, him, and the bass player of 38 Special, or the <laughs> three guys. <laughs> we never got together, you know? We never got to hang out. The big three, I call us. Uh, yeah, but why did that never happen? Yeah, yeah, we never, too bad, you know? And they're both dead, so here we are. Yeah, they yeah. missed out. Yeah, they really <laughs> did, because that, that, we could have been that, a very, uh, you know, just, just a force of nature, three of us together, but. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no. So, you know, and I came out here when I was 23. So, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to, I mean, Pittsburgh is, is diverse, but it's, 
I mean, the different, you know, there, there's Polish and Ukrainian people, you know what I mean? It's right. Like, <laughs> there's, there's Croatians and Serbians, you know, that's, that, that's like the, but there was like, you couldn't get a burrito to save your life. You know what I mean? There was right. not one Latino person, you know, uh, for instance, that's just a, for instance. And, you know, um, I craved that, man. I really wanted to, you know, the people I work with now, it's, you know, there's, you know, they're, they're literally from Everywhere. Afghanistan and, and Pakistan and a lot of Indians where I work, a lot of learned a lot about, you know, I know more about, you know, Ganesh and Lord Krishna than I could, <laughs> you know, but they talk about that stuff and it's really interesting. And I, you know, I think philosophically they're kind of close to what I believe, you know, um, mm -hmm. so I've, been, I've been agnostic pretty much my whole life, but a lot of the stuff they say makes a heck of a lot of sense, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I have the opportunity to just have a job where I can just, you know, sit and talk to these people, you know, yeah, and, that's really uh, cool. but I'm the only white guy. It's amazing. I'm there's uh 79 of us and I'm the only white guy, which I Is love, right? you know, that's pretty cool. Well, I think that every white person should put themselves in that position. You know what I mean? I agree. Because that's how you, that's how you, you know, and, and it's mostly, you know, it's mostly like, you know, black folks that I work with and they're, they're, the, they're the greatest. I mean, they're like, you know, Mike, I made, my wife made gumbo. I brought you some, I bought or my, you know, I, yeah, you like me, you know, I, I made brownies. I'm, you know, they're always like bringing food, doing this. You want to go here to meet us at this, come to this, do that. You know, I yeah. get invited to, you know, kids birthday parties. They just, they just like me for me. And they have no idea that I published a magazine or wrote books or, uh, you know, had a record label and signed a bunch of bands and played in bands and went on tour. And, you know, they just, they just don't know. They just genuinely like me for me, you know, it, it's, and, and there's, there's so much value in that for me, you know, Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know, like, like, you know, like, okay. So like Bill and Melinda Gates split up, like who's going to go out with them for them. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's Never no again. Yeah. There's no chance at this point. No, I mean, Melinda Gates, I mean, like, no matter what, like, oh, Melinda, you're, oh, your, your eyes, your, your, oh, just, right. oh, yeah, bullshit, you know, and, and those billions, but, you know, we can't mention that, you know, but I mean, you know, like for me, you know, and then sometimes like I'll, you know, you know, I'll bring a CD in or something that I put out or a magazine, I'll give it to certain people. And they're like, Jesus, how did you, you know, they had no idea, you know, and, and it's cool. And then they're like, whoa. Like, wow, you're smart. I'm like, well, kind of. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> like, I figured out how to publish a magazine. I mean, that's, you know, it takes some basic skills or whatever. But, you know, if somebody tells me, like, if someone's talking about rock and roll or I like this band or that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know them. They're like, what? How do you know? You know, and I'm like, oh, no, I, you know, and then I'll show them something or, you know, interview I did with somebody or some, you know, Nirvana, right. whoever they're talking about, whoever, you know, they're like, oh my God, you know, you know, and it's, but it, it doesn't come up. I mean, I'm certainly never going to walk around telling anyone like, Hey, I'm this guy or that guy, or I did this or that, like never, never, you know? So it just, it has to happen organically. And, and honestly, it doesn't happen often, you know, maybe like, yeah, well, I wonder maybe if they... like three people, maybe three or four people in the last almost three years that I've been a guard, maybe like once a year, I'll connect with somebody on that level or, or they'll, um, there, there was one, there's one, uh, service unit manager who's like, was, you know, like a rockabilly chick. And she was into like social distortion all. And she was like, Oh, I remember gearhead. I know that, you know, I'm like, wow. You know, it's like literally one person where I work that's even heard of it, you know? Oh, and, gearhead, gearhead was your magazine? Gearhead magazine. Yes. Oh, I didn't and, know that. 
Yeah, I published that from 1983 till 20, 2009. Oh, wow. This last one. Almost, you know, just 18 years, I guess. Ish. That's major, yeah. Yeah, and then I put, you know, and then the first 10 had records in them. So kind of started a label and a magazine simultaneously, like the first 10. And then after that split off, did the magazine and label separately. And um, and then I had a lot of merch, too. I, I mean, honestly, for years I lived off. T-shirts, hats, patches, stickers, you know, belt buckles, patches, wow. anything I could put the logo on, you know. Then I would go to car shows and hawk that stuff and, you know, and if you had a couple, you know, you just live from show to show, really. But it's it's been hand to mouth since, you know, I, I was 48 years old when I got my first job. So, I, wow. I, yeah, from 18 to 48, I just completely did my own thing, you know, which was, you know, you work in record stores, but, you know, nothing that would have a 401k, you know, nothing yeah. that would have, you know, paid days off or anything like it's just never a real job job, like never, never, never. And, you know, it was, yeah, I went from record stores to record distribution to, you know, DJ to clubs, uh, book bands, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And just, and roadied for bands, uh, I would hop in anyone's van. You know, when I lived in Pittsburgh, I, I would, you know, I went with Husker Du. Uh, I went to, with Toxic Reasons, Sam Hain, you know, like Glenn Danzig's band between the Misfits and Danzig. Oh, yeah. you know? yeah. And I used to go with them and, and roadie for them and stuff. And uh, which is just crazy, you know, looking back on all that, I was really, and then government issue from DC, I roadie for them for years. You know, I had a van, so I would, they would pay me and I'd pick them up and take, I mean, it was crazy though. Cause I would drive like from Pittsburgh to DC and pick them up for a show in Chicago, oh, you know? Shit. So I would drive four hours to DC, four hours back to Pittsburgh, then 10 hours to Chicago. You know? So I drove That's 18 hours time. that day, but got them there, you know, like just really, really crazy, you know, for 50 bucks, you know, that was, so, you know, like that, you know, but whatever, but I was, but you know, you got I was, to be with the band and yeah, and yeah, exactly. Life. And, yeah. and they'll play, you know, and they'd be playing like, uh, you know, you know, music I never heard or, you know, the scream has a new album, you know, that have it six months before anyone else heard it. And you'd hear, it and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's cool. And, uh, and that's the first place I heard, you know, a lot of obscure British punk records and j just stuff. I mean, it was like, you just, you know, you want to be around the people that you admire. You know, I always put myself in a situation where, um, I, you know, I, I, I would just, go where the action is you know that that was like my whole thing and um sometimes it was crazy because like for instance i was with husker du and they played in pittsburgh with my my first band was called real enemy and it only lasted for about six months but it was the first pittsburgh hardcore band you know like ever and late 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 in the game 1983 you know any any other city uh would have had like a pretty established you know hardcore scene by then Right. Especially major cities. I mean, you know, and, and all around us, I mean, Cleveland and, you know, D.C. and Philly and, you know, all, all had really good, you know, New York City, of course, you know, and, and we were late, you know, and I just I couldn't I couldn't take it anymore. I had to, so I had, to <laughs> had to start my own band, you know, just so angry after high school and everything, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we lived in a town where, you know, if you wrote a name of your band on your jeans, you would get beaten up. But it was perfectly OK for people to shave their heads and paint them like Steelers helmets, you know, and that, <laughs> that was normal behavior. But if we, you know, you just had like short hair and looked weird, you know, you were you were like a real target. You know, I, I definitely come from the the era when punk was really dangerous, you know, but mm. um, 
but this this one you know it was uh, uh april of uh 83 uh we played with who's and then the next night they were playing in cleveland and they're like come with us i'm like okay i jump in the van you know and uh, they're opening for the fall you know <laughs> and oh, so nice. yeah and i'm like backstage and you know i'm this guy's like, hey, kid, can you watch my beer? And it was Mark, Marky Smith. You know, I, I didn't even know what he looked like, you know, and and I'm watching his beer. And then some then at some point I'm like, why am I watching his beer? I'm going to go watch the show. You know? <laughs> so, right. And I never went back in there. So I don't know if his beer was there or not. But seeing the fall was mind blowing. You know, it was like that crazy two drummer lineup. And in, you know, 83, it was just incredible. And they played tempo house and eat yourself fitter and all that perverted by language it was incredible like you know like I, I just kept throwing myself in situations like that and and um like in 82 you know i graduated and i'm from hermony pennsylvania it's very small towns less than a thousand people they've never had a thousand people like even still there's not a thousand people there and um you know it's a farm town you know like um you know ffa and 4-h clubs and you know kids with the you know biggest chicken and all that shit went like that kind of thing you know did it's you ever win biggest chicken yeah no i never had a, i'm not from a farm my grandfather was a, a businessman he owned a tool and die shop and he you know he's an italian businessman and 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 but he was a coal miner and then he bought a lathe and he became a tool and die maker and he worked his way up and started business and had a lot of success with it he was he was just he was smart you know it was really it's kind of like a handsome, charismatic guy, and he just worked his way out of the, out of the coal mine and out of the garage, you know, and um, nice. and, and promptly dropped dead when I was five years old. So you know, as, oh, as wow. all, as all, as all Italian stories end, you know, right? <laughs> tragic early patriarch dies. Yeah. Oh, I've already, I've already outlived, like you know, practically. I'm at fifty six. I've, I've outlived most of the men in my family. It's sad, wow. you know. A few of them, a few hung in there, but, uh, whew, you know. So, uh, and, and I'm fine. I mean, I, I, hopefully I didn't get that, uh, whatever, whatever bad heart, bad, whatever that, you know, but, yeah. uh, but anyway, but, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm from this small town and when I got, when I got to Pittsburgh, which is only right over the hill, 35 minutes away, but it's a whole other world, you know, cause then you're, you know, you're there with kids who are going to Carnegie Mellon university and Duquesne and Pitt. And, you know, there's tons of colleges there and there's tons of, you know, you know, tons of record stores, tons of, you know, repertory, you know, film houses, you know, old, you know, people showing old movies and old, and I got, I got hit so hard with, when I turned 18 and I moved out, I got hit so hard with, you, you know, like within one month would have been the first time I read Bukowski, read Kerouac, saw a Francois Truffaut film, heard Joy Division, heard the, you know, I got, I got hit with it in like one month, like, like just everything, you know, like 1983 nice. was nuts. And then, uh, took a road trip down to DC and we saw with a couple of friends and we saw the cramps on a Thursday night, the gun club on Saturday night. And then on Sunday, there was a hardcore matinee with uh, the Necros, the faith and the meat men. And that's when I first saw my first hardcore show. So that was like uh, what, March 6th. And then my band played on April 20th, you know, like seven weeks later, <laughs> the band wrote a set, all original material played out, you know, so That's like amazing. I wasted no time once I, you know, um, you know, uh, there was this, there was one other guy who was interested and then there was our bass player, his name was Steve Heineman. The, the guitar player's name was Vince Curtis. And then we were together again in Half-Life, which, you know, I'm, I'm known for like, you know, Paul 
loves loved Half Life. You know, that's like those. There's those guys who were uh, like my old Pittsburgh friends are really. Uh, they're still collecting flyers and you know, oh, I still need this one sticker. They're still, you know, they're, they're so caught up in it because it was like big fish in a small pond. You know what I mean? We were like a yeah. decent band, but in a, a very small kind of scene and the people that, you know, my friends from that, that time and place, Paul certainly among them and Dave Martin and Dan Allen. And, you know, there's, there's a bunch of these guys, Frank Santoro, they, they all used to come see the band and we're all like still really good friends. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, and then they all went on to become whatever they did and they all became artists or, you know, Dave was like VP of sales at Matador for years. He's like really, uh, in the record business and really, you know, and those guys would, you know, turn me on to stuff for, for forever after, you know, like that, that core group of friends that I made then uh, just all went on to do really neat things, you know, and Jeff, Jeff Lamb, who was the singer of Half-Life, you know, he went on to, he has a company called Grease Bat. If people look that up, he makes like Japanese toys, you know, like he designs these things and they send them, they make, you know, those little plastic toys, you know, yeah. and he's really big in that world. And then he does a lot of other art and stickers and flyers and, 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 you know, like he, it's just amazing. Like, uh, and then, and then Vince, who was the guitar player, makes like he's like makes like these like hand spun bowls out of wood and all this like artisan crazy. It's like it's like 1708 over at his house. You know, it's just crazy. <laughs> like he makes all, awesome. he's like, yeah, no, you know, it's just so. And then he's like a I don't know how many degree black belt. And he still looks like he's about 20 and he's, you know, almost 60. And it's just it's really like these are like I had these really remarkable friends there and we're all still close and i'm you know i'm really thankful for that because i can't say that about my high school friends you know there's a couple of guys that maybe they heard of the ramones you know didn't beat me up or whatever you know, right. like, you know i went to see devo and they didn't hit me you know so that was the, that was good that was about as good as it was gonna get you know but uh, once i got to pittsburgh i just got bombed with all that culture and and um and that certainly included you know art you know and and going to just going to museums and going to galleries and openings and this and this. And I just, you know, I took it all in like a sponge, but at the same time forming this hardcore band and like really being, you know, that was my mission, like try to, you know, bring hardcore. And so once we had a local band, you know, all the bands could come and, you know, so we played with Flipper and, you know, and, you know, Husker Du and Kraut and, you know, Toxic Reasons and Channel 3 the Necros, anyone who came to town, we would open for them, you know, and, and, and that became like lifetime friendships too, you know? And so, so it's really, it's really cool. And then when real enemy broke up, it was gonna, it was, it was kind of doomed to fail. Cause like I said, Vince, Vince was like, he came from like, he liked Cabaret Voltaire and bands like that. And he kind of like hardcore and he kind of got into it. And then once he got into it, he kind of stayed in it. But our bass player, Steve was, he was into like, you know, gong, and can and and you know miles davis and vandergraaf generator he was a prog guy he turned me on to you know matching mole and all that kind of stuff he was really totally prog rock guy king crimson whatever and then our drummer russell like the ramones and that was it basically <laughs> so we were kind of we were four we, we really didn't have a lot in common but the music was really interesting because there was this we were bringing this like kind of prog element to hardcore, which was, you know, kind of, 
in, in, in the least pretentious way possible. We just had a lot of, none of the songs were like this part, that part. It wasn't like verse, course, verse, course, end. There was always like a third part, a bridge. A, you know, there was just, there was a little more going on, you know. And, That's cool. Uh, and yeah, what, what did you play? A, a singer. I couldn't play anything. Okay. And uh, just a singer. And, uh, you know. And you wrote the songs? Or I, wrote, I wrote lyrics. Sure, of course. R ridiculous yeah. now, you know, to look at them. Just the uh, anger that I had. You know, where I, I can't imagine why I was so angry, you know. But, uh, it, well, just because, you know, you're, you're, you're hip to all this stuff and the rest of the world wants to, like, kill you for some reason. You know, that, that, was, that right. was a reason enough, you know. Like, that's, that's a good reason you know, to be angry. And, yeah. And, so, you or know. it just puts you in a box. They just want you to be... Something yeah, I mean, that, like, they, that they name you. Right. But like minor threat were angry, you know, like they were angry. They just like, this is what, you know, but I, I never, I, I don't, I never uh, wrote a lyric that became a set of rules for a generation or anything like that. You know, right. thank God, you know, the, who wants to deal with that kind of pressure, you know, my God, but right. you know, but uh, no, you, you know, so, and then, and then, and then when half-life started, there was this guy, Mike Michelski played guitar and this guy, Blair, Blair Powell, who played drums. And they wanted me to come down and sing. And I said, well, why don't I play bass? And I had never played bass, you know, but I thought, well, how hard can this be? You know, and we listened, I listened, we listened to Flipper and stuff like that. And I was like, this, this can't be hard. You know, I, I have rhythm. I can do this. And uh, I wanted Jeff Lamb, who was, had been the roadie for Real Enemy. I wanted him to um, be the singer because he was so, I, he was just really special. I don't know how to, I, I, I really don't know. I saw something in him, you know. And I wanted yeah. him to be a singer. So we went and played for a while. And we were just terrible, you know, like really bad. Um, but but he came in and, rah, 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 you know, he did his little sort of monotone, rah, rah, you know. But then um, then then we had lineup changes. And um, we got in a guy, uh, Ron, who was a really good drummer. And then we could play faster and tighter. And But he brought his friend Rick with him. And that guy wrote songs. And then we were five-piece for a while. And then Mike quit. And then Vinny, who had been in Real Enemy uh, with me, one day we were practicing and he came downstairs <laughs> with his guitar and he opened up the case and he plugged it in and said, I'm in Half-Life now. And we didn't say anything. Like, no, <laughs> nobody was going to, he was like a couple years older than us. Nobody was going to say anything. You know, like, okay. You know, he just joined. And then, Forced uh, entry. Yeah. And then we, you know, and then we made, a, we recorded this uh, like demo tape called what's right and well we had our own little label and everything real enemy had a cassette and we didn't the only reason i didn't have records out was because i had absolutely no idea how to make a record you know it just it yeah. seemed so daunting but the cassette was easy you would just make a there was a place that would just duplicate cassettes i remember sam matthews uh is a guy who was always in the scene in pittsburgh he was in literally dozens of bands and he he uh where he worked he, he got a bunch of old like Dict uh, dictation cassettes and he gave them to me and we went and took them to a place and that's what we made them on we just made them on from, you know like they were cassettes, tiny micro were, uh, cassettes to, to regular well no 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 they were, they were regular size cassettes but i think they i think sec secretaries were going to use them to record meetings or what you know what i mean like he got them from a whatever office building he was working i just stole a big box of cassettes he's like here here's your cassette. I'm like okay you know i mean <laughs> any i mean we're, we're talking like no budget in the world you know like no money right. at all but we did it we put out this cassette you know and then and then uh when when half-life made our tape we there was a guy george hyde george hyde productions and we and we went over there and 
and you know he had a real tape you know duplicating machine and we you know we get we went to the studio and you know you know uh and then edited it all and got it all how we wanted it and then made this cassette and it sold like god it sold hundreds and hundreds of copies and and we would keep it in print for years and then later posthumously uh get hip records put it out on lp cassette and cd it's called what's right and it sold it sold so many copies like it freaks me out that it's like it's like pretty much everybody that ever lived in Pittsburgh must own it or something, you know, like <laughs> or any or anyone who lives in Pittsburgh between a certain age owns it. You know, right. you know, like it's it's kind of kind of one of those and really didn't. Uh, and yeah. And yes, you know, like uh, people in, you know, Australia, Japan, you know, wherever England, you know, they would write to us and we used to trade tapes and trade records and trade, you know. And at one point, my friend Frank Papagallo, he he was a singer of a band from Adelaide, South Australia called Where's the Pope? And he came and stayed with us. And then we learned some of his songs and he would come up and play. And then there was this guy named Cherry from uh, this uh, Osaka, Japan, uh, hardcore band called Zo, uh, Z-O-U-O, Zo. And, and we learned some of his songs and he would come up and sing with us. And so we were like... For Pittsburgh, we had a remarkably international appeal. You know, I'm kind of kind of still amazed by all that. But but again, when you're when you're 19, 20, you're just running with it. You know, I'm not really thinking about anything. I'm just doing it, doing it, doing it, you know. Do you want to start a magazine? Well, uh, I well, I wrote for a magazine. Out, well, I had a we had a zine called Beyond Good and Evil, and it was free because we didn't want to hear anyone bitch about they they paid it from paid for it and didn't like it. You know, <laughs> right. if if we would have charged for it, Justin, it would have been a quarter maybe. You know, right. but we but we were like, nope, we're making them free, and we would just you know like sneak into people who worked in offices and run them off or give people here, man, do, can you run off a hundred of these and somebody else run? And then we put them together, you know, it was ridiculous, but we, but I always wanted to, I, I was, you know, zine culture is fascinating, you know? And then anyway, there was a magazine in Philadelphia called terminal. I haven't thought about this for years, but he, he asked me to write for him. And I wrote an article about the five who were from Pittsburgh. They were the true big fish in a small pond. They were, they were great. And, uh, 
Reed Paley is was the singer of that band who went on to make solo records and he has a record on sub pop and he he made a record with you know Black Francis from the Pixies, their friends and stuff. And he's 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 great, but he he uh his band were just you know remarkable and uh you know uh that that he he couldn't get any he the guy who published that magazine had heard of him and he's like can you write an article about them i'm like absolutely they're my friends you know and that was the first time i ever wrote anything and it got published and i was kind of like ooh you know that's i like this kind of thing but uh, cool. when when half life was out here so in 1987 we did a us tour and it was the summer that gilman opened and it was the very first summer they were open 1987 and we uh we played there and um you know, I was just talking to Tim Yohannan and who was the, you know, editor of Maximum Rock and Roll, right? Legendary editor of Maximum Rock and Roll, opened Epicenter's own record store, opened Gilman Street Project Club. Uh, you know, he had his hand in a lot of pies. He made a lot of things happen. He was a he was a he was an Iranian communist from New Jersey, you know. So <laughs> like five foot one Iranian communist, you know. Uh but yeah, he's a, he's an amazing guy. He's he's been dead many years and I I think about him often, but he was the one who said, he was like, you know, Lavella, he's like, if you could write the way you talk, you'd be great. You know? And I'm like, wow, you know, thank So he was the one who put this bug in my ear to write. And then he said, if you move out here, I'll give you, you can write for us. You know, I'll give you a job, which it wasn't a paid position. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure you call it a job, but, and then, uh, and then Jesse Michaels, I have to say, who is a singer for Operation Ivy, Who's, who is from Pittsburgh, which a lot of people don't know, he came out here and, and you know, Operation Ivy were like a big deal. And uh, he was like, you got to come out here, man. He's like, you're, you know, you're, Pittsburgh is, you're spinning your wheels, you know. I'm like, yeah. So in 87, so in 88, you know, so we went back and I got determined to record a record and we did. I, 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 I fell in love uh, with this uh, woman named Mara and she, her family had money and I somehow convinced them to lend me the money to record our album. Uh, to this day, I don't know how I pulled that off, but I did. And um, then we went to a really great studio and 24 track and we recorded this album called Never Give In. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't want to leave town without making a good record because, you know, at that point now I'm in the band since 83, right? Yeah. And it's 1988. I mean, it's been five years. It's like, you know, and we had a single out in 1986. We put out an EP called Under the Knife and uh, made a couple thousand copies. It did OK, but we, you know, it was time to make an album for sure. And so we made this album and then uh, I packed up everything I owned, uh, all my records, everything. Had to get a U-Haul for the records even then, you know, I had to mm -hmm. 23 uh, boxes of records, I think, I packed. And, and um and then we, you know, and me and my, and I got married and we were going to get married in a church and all that, but it all fell through. And uh, so we just went to the justice of the peace and got married and, uh, we just, you know, put everything in the, in, a, in the, the van, you know, the, 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 you know, the van that I used for the band, you know, and, uh, and uh, got a U-Haul and moved out here. And, uh, I, you know, when I was taking my records, people were like, wow, you're really going for real. Like they knew because I was taking my records, I wasn't coming back, you know, like that's like, right. that's a big commitment. You know, like if I left my records behind, oh, he'll be back, you know, but you know, I've, it's been, 30, it's been 32 years, you know, I haven't been back. So uh how but, many records did you have then and how many do you have now oh my god then i had almost 2300 count boxes right like 20 
2,300 albums then, you know, and okay. I have 13,000 now, I think. <laughs> so, yeah, Holy it's shit. a lot. It's a lot of records. It's, it's ridiculous. But, I mean, they're very organized. You know, if you come over here, anything you want to hear. Yeah, I know I can have I can have it on the turntable in 10 seconds. It's very organized. Nice. So, um, yeah, Do you have a really good system? Well, you know, the, yeah. I mean, it's it's by genre more or less, but every, then it's just alphabetical, you know. And then within each artist, it's you know by it's chronological. It's by release, you know. So, right. if you want to play Frank Zappa, obviously Freak Out is first, and then whatever's the last one I have is last, and then you know, if you want to hear Hot Rats, you know, you go what nine records down and pull it out. You know, you know, it's just all yeah. It's very organized. It has to be because if you have records everywhere, it's it sucks. You know, it really does. And and, a lot, and I, every now and then I'll find a box of singles or something like, damn it, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like, blah. you know, you it's, it's the whole room. Well, yeah. Well, it's not like it's not like yay records. It's like, damn it. How did I lose track? Of, you know, I mean, I really try to stay on top of it. But yeah, no, I saw, so you know, yeah, I had a lot of records. Then, and I, then I came and, and everything I've ever done, by the way, I was put myself in a position to get records like right for magazines. They send you promos, you know. Publish right. a magazine, they send you promos. Work at record distribution, you get promo. Like I did anything, you know, I was always in that situation to get free records. And that's exactly, you know, what I, you know, more than food, more than clothing, more than shelter, I wanted records. So that's what, you know, so that's how you, that's, that's, you know, you, you just put yourself in that position. But when I got here, Tim Yohannan, true to his word, you know, I started writing for Maximum Rock and Roll and it was amazing. I had a, you know, I, re I reviewed, I don't know, seven, 10 records every month. I had a little column. I, you know, and then um, I interviewed Mudhoney at one point and then Pusshead, uh, who was, you know, uh, he was the music editor at Thrasher at the time. He was like, do you have enough on them to do a, like a unique story for us, for Thrasher? And I was like, yeah, of course. And then I started writing for Thrasher and then I wrote for them from uh, 19... It was either 89 or 90 through about 95. I wrote for Thrasher for five or six years, you know, and that was paid. You know, that was that was actually paid. And nice. uh, and then I used to write for uh, Rip, which was like a, a you know, a, a you know, like a magazine you could get on newsstands and stuff. I had a little column like after Gearhead started. But for like five years from like 88 to 93. I lived in San Francisco and I, I just went to shows and that's it. I mean, I went out at, you know, f at least four nights a week, if not five or six. And I saw mm -hmm. everybody, you know, I saw Soundgarden open for Tragic Mulatto. I saw Nirvana open for Bad Mother Goose. I saw, you know, like that kind of stuff, like just everybody when they were in their infancies, you know, and then, yeah. and then got to know everybody and interviewed everybody and, if I wasn't interviewing somebody for Maximum Rock and Roll, I was interviewing them for Thrasher, you know, and then uh, and then eventually, you know, I was working at a, in record distribution and I thought, you know, I, I should I should start a magazine, you know, and then um, I didn't really know the ropes of selling a magazine, but I knew how to sell records, which is the only reason that Gearhead came with a record, because I'm like, well, if I put a record in it, then I can. I know what, you know, I know yeah. which channels to go through. So that's why the first 10 had had records. And that, that's, that's really cool. all there is to it. And they were all split singles because just because I was doing a, I was going to do a flexi disc with Gas Huffer in 1993. And then they were doing a cover of the Rosillos. 
and then Supercharger caught wind of that, and they were they were like a local band. They're like, we do a we do a Rosillo's cover. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll let's do a split single, and that's the only reason. Like that wasn't my my bright idea. That was a you know the band coming to me and saying, hey, let's we want to be on there too. So you know there was like a lot of before it even existed, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. Let me say so you know, that's and right. I always I always. Uh, Man, you know that I don't. I you know I don't. I don't really have any actual. I mean, I can't use uh, Photoshop or Illustrator. I, I I just all the layout was done by me drawing it with a pencil and handing it to somebody who knew how to do it. You know, I'm like here's what I want, and I I understood design and I understood like how to keep your eye on the page and all those elements of you know. But and I wanted it to look really retro, and I I just would pour over car magazines from the 60s and how they were designed and laid out and i'm like this is so cool and i so you know i wanted this you know like rock and roll magazine underground rock whatever punk rock garage punk garage rock whatever you want to call all that and i wanted it to look like a car mag so you know that's so i took that you know these two elements and kind of put them together but that was happening anyway there was a lot of bands that had songs about cars and were using car imagery and you know, that's when like the super suckers came along and all those kind of bands, you know, and it was just really, uh, you know, there, there was just this, uh, just a ton of good bands and there was all these people that wanted to write for it and take pictures and do layout. I never had a problem getting talent together to, to do it. Everybody just, but I mean, I guess, I guess like that's the one thing I'm good at, you know, is like, uh, getting people to match my level of enthusiasm. Something. you know that's, like the that's one a good quality thing. to have yeah i i, I got it you know i, I that's because i never paid anybody and they all did it for years wow. so you but know does that translate to other areas of your life or is that strictly if it's something you're um like gung -ho about? well give me an example like like what uh well work or like like just paid work or Oh, well, I never, like I said, I never had a job till I was 48. Until now, yeah. Well, it, yeah, well, I'm 50. Yeah, I've been, God, I've been working, my God, I've been working for eight years now. So, <laughs> so congratulations. People always like, when are you going to retire? I'm like, well, I've been working for eight years. So, yeah. you know, I'm like, you know, financially, I'm I'm where you were at age 26. So, Who, me? You know, I hope, like, or you're just saying hypothetically. Yeah, like, you know, like if somebody started working when they were 18, a lot of people did. Like at the hospital where I work, yeah. these guys started when they were 18. And they're like, they've been there for 20 years, 30 years, you know, and they they can retire someday. They'll have, you know, yeah. I can't. I'm not paying. I was, I, I didn't pay a dime into Social Security until I was 48 years old, you know, so. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I've been, I mean, I've been doing some, but it's, I've been self-employed for most of my adult life. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you and know, I had a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, crap jobs before yeah. that. Well, I worked at the bowling alley. That's Amoeba Records now. You know, the Park Bowl. I was shoe boy. Oh, but, that's cool. You know, but they don't. But what, they, what was that like when it was? Because it was called Rock and Bowl. Well, it, well, right? it was called the Park Bowl, but they had Rock and Bowl every Thursday, which oh, I okay. worked. Man, the guy Gilbert who started that, I was the doorman for years for that. Um, it was cool, you know, like that was, you know, you would go to go there and they'd be like, okay, uh, it'd be like, how's it going? I'm like, man, I don't know. My girlfriend, he's like, look, before you start your shift, I want you to smoke a big joint, you know, <laughs> I'm like, boy, am I in San Francisco now? You know, like, wow, this is, you know, or like, go down, get yourself a drink and then let's start, you know, just relax. You're at work now, relax, you know, like nice. the opposite of, you know, 
it yeah. was so mellow. And when they would that rock and bowl, they would and then then for a while it was rave and bowl, and they had like raves in there, like you know, the full right raves. in the early nineties. Yeah, yeah, in the nineties, kids were like you know they would knock. Uh, like in the girls' bathroom, they would like go outside and push a big thing of nitrous oxide into a window. And it was like, you know, and then they were like in the stalls, like giving girls nitrous. And I mean, it's nuts, you know, like, you know, like, out of control, you know, and, and, and I'd be like making out with somebody when I should have been patrolling that or something, you know, it was just so, you know, yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, looking you were supposed like, to be the doorman. Yeah. To- <laughs> it, was, it was probably the best job I ever had when I look back at it, you know. That's amazing. Uh, and I got, and you know, and then, you know, you drank free when you were there and oh my God, that bar was, it was great. And then, you know, I would interview bands there. I, I made it like my office, you know, it was, it was so great when I go in there. My, so one of my best friends in the world is, uh, his name is Tom Lynch and he's the buyer at Amoeba in, in San Francisco. He's from Detroit. And, uh, I mean, we're like, we're like a really, really good friend of mine. You know, I go over there uh, whenever I'm off on Sundays, we go and we, you know, on his lunch break, we go eat and we, you know, we really, and every time I walk in there, man, I'm like, you know, I still see the, the lanes. I still see the, you know, where the information desk is, was the shoe where you would rent shoes, you know, and, oh, down, cool. and down where the DVDs are, the DVD room, you know, that was pool tables, you know, and did it still like, have the, like the ramp and the steps the way they yeah, are? They, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the same okay. with the rail. That's about it though. You know? But but I had the opportunity, you know, uh, this guy, Ron Donovan, worked there who was half of Firehouse, the poster art guys. And he he, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he he um he had a key. And when they was closed, we went in. He's like, get whatever you want. And I took a set of pins and an automatic like a pin setter and, a you know, the ball <laughs> return thing that says Brunswick. Then I took the signs that said, like, men's rooms, ladies room, all that stuff. I mean, just I went in there with a the screwdriver and got anything I could, you know. And, Is it, you uh, mean when you knew it was going under? Yeah, no, it was done. It was closed. Oh, was yeah. well, no, no, no. We didn't do that when it was open. You know, it was like, right. the, but, it, but this was like right in the. Yeah, it was sold. It was sold, and it was being gutted. And while it was being gutted, I we all took some stuff. Let's oh, good. You saved. You saved it. Yeah, I, of course. And yes, you could look at it. That, yes, I, <laughs> it, they're architectural artifacts that I treasure. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, but uh, no, I, I love that job. But I. But you know, to to your point, yeah, I had a lot of little jobs, mostly record stores and working in record distribution, and you know, just. Records, 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 you know, wherever I could. And then wrote for magazines, made some money here and there. When Gearhead started, I, I, I never thought I could make a living off of it. And, and, and you know what? I never did, but I certainly eked out an existence, you know? Right. Uh, I was certainly able to pay the rent uh, for years. I, d- different times I didn't have a car, which is ludicrous when you're publishing a car magazine, you know? But yeah. And eventually the automotive journalism crept in because there were certain guys, David Featherston... Tony Thacker, there were, there were people in the, in the legit car world that, that, that got it, that liked it and then wanted to write for it, you know, and started writing for it. So pretty soon, like by about issue number five, we have like really legit automotive journalism in there happening simultaneous with the music stuff. So it just became this, it just really became a mishmash of everything that I liked. You know, if it, if I liked it, it could go in there and, uh, and I never, what better gauge is there? Well, yeah, you know, and I never tried to do what other people thought was, I mean, like, I never had social distortion in there, for instance, because 
that seems so obvious, you know, like, yeah. or someone like that. I never, you know, so instead we did a huge thing on craft work, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I love them. And then, and then you come to find out so do other people. So right. I had like, you know, different people, you know, review their favorite craft work record. And, you know, and it, it was really interesting, like how, how things like that would come together. Um, and, and, you know, there was no internet at all then, you know, it was just, we're all, this is all phone calls and bumped into somebody. And I remember right. one day I was sitting there and I think gearhead number seven had just come out and that had a Donna's and groovy ghoulies split single with both bands doing, um, uh, sweet, uh, sweet covers, covers by, you know, the band, the sweet, you know, the glam mm-hmm. band. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, what am I going to, who am I going to, what am I going to do now? You know? And, and, and the Melvins walked in. Cause I, 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 I used to have an office inside of, oh, I worked at man's ruin records, Frank Kozik's label. And I, and then when I, and then when I stopped, like I just stayed, I kind of, you know, had an office there. I, I hooked him up with Cayuse is what it was. And he was like, if you if you can get Cayuse on the label, I'll give you an office for five years. And he did. He did. It was four years and 11 months, like almost wow. exactly five years. But but I I called Josh Homme and I got them to do a record for Man's Ruin. And it sold like 30,000 copies, you know, on vinyl back then. And and he was like, OK, you know, you got a place. So I was but I'm, I remember I was sitting there and then the Melvins walked in. And I'm like, oh, Buzz, do you want to do a record? Gear? Yeah, sure. I'm like, who do you want to do the on the B side? They were like you're friends with the cosmic psychos, right? I'm like, yes. He's like cosmic psych done. It was like that simple, you know, like nice. everything would just fall in my lap. It was crazy, you know? And I was building up to when I did number 10, you know, like I wanted Robert Williams and he let me use the, I, I interviewed him and I, you know, I, this, his iconic painting hot rod race got to use for the cover, which he never let anyone else use it, you know? And, uh, and then I did, you know, like rocket from the crypt single who were like my, my favorite band then. And, and I was like, who do you want on the B side? And they're like, you know, the helicopters. And I was like, yeah, you know, and I'd been going to Sweden, you know, every, every couple of years at that point. And, 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 you know, it all, it all would just come together like really beautifully, you know? And then after I interviewed Robert Williams, you know, some years later, they, it was generally accepted that that was like the best piece ever written on him. So I had an opportunity to write a book with him. That's called, uh, it's called the hot rod world of Robert Williams. And, um, uh, in motor book, books, the publisher contacted me and they're like, Hey, do you want to, I'm like, yeah, you know, and, and then, you know, then I like got paid, paid to, to write a book and which was amazing, you know, and I just went down and, you know, Robert basically dictated the book to me. He's like this, you know, genius level dude, you know, and he just yeah. he knew what he wanted. And he was just like, well, and he talks like that. He talks like Walter Brennan, see? Yeah, you know? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I was crazy on my motorcycle. He says, motorcycle. See, it's great fun. And so I have like these tapes of him talking that I, you know, I treasure, you know, and he's telling stories about, you know, he worked for Big Daddy Roth for years and, that, you know, he was there for this when they had a big fight with the Hells Angels. And he's like giving me the story, you know, like all this stuff that nobody wanted to talk about. And it's just, you know, I, you know, that, that was kind of like the maybe the peak of my journalistic career, maybe. But, that you know, it's great. But, but anyway, check out that book. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's hardcover only, but it's out there. Um, and then and then um, Cole Foster, who's a car builder in Salinas, Salinas Boys, like that went well. And I, same thing. I interviewed him. So after like I spent. You know, I, you know, the label and magazine split off. I did a I did a cover story on Cole Foster and uh, David Johnson, my friend who, again, died two, almost almost two years ago now. He's a great, great guy. He. Uh, 
he was like, we got to do Cole. We went down to Salinas, photographed him, you know, did this interview. And again, motor books are like that interview is the best. Do you want to write a book? So, you know, if you work and you put stuff out there, you never know where it's going to go. You know, yeah. like you really have to, you know, uh, if you're putting things out into the world, you never know who's going to see it, I guess is what I'm saying. And sometimes it leads to, you know, people saying, well, you're the expert on this now, you know, uh -huh. it's, it's like, it's like writing a doctorate or something, you know, yeah. when, when you write a thesis for, I mean, I never went to college for one minute. Okay. But I, you know, a lot of my friends, one of my best friends is a, a tenured professor um, at Creighton university, you know, um, in, in uh, Omaha, Alexi Marcoux. It's one of my best friends. I met him at a punk rock party in 1990 and we stayed close and um, you know, he, he, uh, he's always like, you know, that's, you know, he always, he, he's always quick to point out these parallels, you know, he's like, you know, them asking you to write this book is just like you doing a, you know, a doctorate, you know, a thesis for a doctorate on something. You're like, you become the expert on this thing. And I, that's, it's certainly something I never thought about, but you know, I guess it's true in a way, you know, cause the book's published, it's out there, it exists. It's in the library of Congress, you know, Right. That's a, that's a cool day when you get you get a letter. It's like, dear sir, we have accepted your book into the Library of Congress. You know, that's really cool. It, it is because then you're like, well, this is this will be around when I'm dead. You know, that's a, yeah, legacy it's, stuff. It's, a, it's a small level of immortality, I guess. You know, for but, sure. But uh, I'm I'm talking so romantically. I haven't written anything in years. I'm talking so, I'm talking so romantically. <laughs> do, you, do, you, it, do you want to write again? I have at least two books in me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, fiction yeah, I'm, or nonfiction? Well, I, I want to write a book about the Pittsburgh punk scene because there's all these characters, and there were, I mean, between the five and car sickness and the cardboards and dress up as natives, and there were all it these. Seems, 
I was going to ask you a few minutes ago uh, if you felt like during all this, these, you know, 30 years or whatever of, of just following this musical chain, do you feel like you, like you said things were falling into your lap and, you know, did you feel at some point like you were the guy, you had to be the one doing this stuff? Like it was all coming through your well, channel? Well, wow. That's a good question. I, I, um, I mean, I guess to some extent, just because I, if I'm putting party A together with party B, right. And right. then they create something like, for instance, the band me first in the gimme gimme's like I, I was friends with fat Mike from no effects and I dragged him basically kicking and screaming to see this band called L and L, which my friend Spike from Pittsburgh was the singer. And he saw me, he's like, God, that guy's so talented. Then he built me first in the gimme gimme's around Spike. You know, so I'm like a hundred percent responsible for that. Band. <laughs> That's you know, cool. it's things like that. I mean, I have I could tell you so many things like that. You know, it's just it's just when you're out there and you're doing stuff and you know people, and then you're like, this guy should go with this. These two should really meet. You know, and you put things together, and then pretty soon, like, and then and then it's out of my hands. I mean, I never went to one of their rehearsals. You know what I mean? I mean, they came over and pilfered my record collection for all their picture sleeves early on like all their early singles and records they are like, Oh, this is funny. And it's like, which is why their records will have like Alan Sherman or something on it, you know, like, and to them, they're like, what's this weird thing? I'm like, it's Alan, like to me, Alan Sherman is like as famous as John Lennon, but he's not, but in my world he is, you know, but you know, to them, they're like, who's this funny fat guy. This will make a funny record, you know? So, you know, whatever. I, and they used all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I was a little more involved than just introducing them, but you know, like, like things like that. I was always trying to, I don't know, just move it forward somehow, you know, just put positive. And, you know, in the magazine, I had a really strict policy about no negative reviews, like nothing negative, like oh, only, cool. only write about stuff you like, you know, and that was really crucial. And uh, it and, might have and, been the only publication doing that. Well, most... yeah, I mean, like if there's so much, okay, if there's so much out there that you're liking, why would you pay any attention to something you don't like? You know, I just, you know, good point, man. I mean, most people, because they think it sells, you know, they think that's what people want is criticism or no, I I would much rather, yeah, I'd much rather read about something cool than something. Well, you you know, also like also too, and maybe you find this to be true. Also, if you're doing a subject you, you like, it just becomes, it's easy. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm writing about something I like, like uh, Jason Pettigrew was who was the senior editor of Alternative Press for like decades, was like one of my childhood earliest friends. He was the one when I lived in Harmony who was like, this is the damned. This is the Sex Pistols. This, you know, he was the one, you know, there's always like the one guy that yeah. due to punk rock back then. And then he introduced me to these guys, Eric Bauer and Bill Slam, guys who lived in Greensburg and Lake Trobe, and they would go into shows. And then I would like hop a ride, you know, like my mother would actually drive me to the Pennsylvania Turnpike. I'd hop out of her car, hop into one of these guys' cars and would go to a show, you know, and she let me do that from the time I was about 16, I guess, you know, and, right. and, I, you know and I would just go to, you know, and thank God, because I got to see the Pretenders in 81 and Devo in 81 and Gang of Four in 1981 and the clash wow. twice in 1982 and Elvis Costello and, you know, just, you know, just, you know, always, always was able to, and then, you know, and then in like 83, once I moved to Pittsburgh and I was like, Oh, the Ramones are playing in Cleveland. Let's go, you know, and, 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 and whatever, like whoever was, whatever we would go. And it was great. <laughs> and, and I had old, they were older friends. They had cars, they had some dough, they were working, you know, 
And I, so I always made sure I was hooked up with people that could drive me somewhere or whatever, you know, always made sure, always made sure I got to where I was going, you know, and, and, and got home, you know, and uh, I mean, it helps that I was like straight edge then too, you know, I didn't drink or take drugs, which is really helpful. Uh, I, I didn't drink until I was 21. I, I was uh, working in Pittsburgh in this bar called Calico's, which was formerly Danny's pub, which was a punk bar. That's the only place I ever saw the cardboards, for instance. And they, Anyway, I worked there years later and I was a DJ and I was 21. I was working on the night of my 21st birthday and the doorman and a couple of the other dudes caught wind of it. And they're like, look, man, you're drinking, you know? And I'm like, no, no, I don't drink, you know? And they were like, no, man, we're look, we're making you a drink. Taste it. If you don't like it, we won't bug you ever again. But you're drinking tonight. You're 21. You're drinking. I'm like, okay. And they made me a blended mudslide. <laughs> <You know? laughs> nice. Do you know what that is? Yeah. Like with uh it's, it's what Kahlua and Kahlua vodka and, and, and Bailey's Irish cream, right? Okay. And ice. There's no, there's nothing in it that isn't booze. It's like <laughs> 100% alcohol. And, uh, and then they blend it and it tastes exactly like a chocolate milkshake, you know? So they're like, here, blend them. And so I, I take a sip. I'm like, this is great. And so I drink it. And then I'm like, you know, and I was like, drinking is great. You know, so it's like, right. it's like instantly like, this is great. Like you went from straight edge to, to yeah, like, milky in feeling? five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if they would have handed me a, you know, a, a Campari and soda but bleh, or something, you know, like at that time. Right. I mean, probably, you know, but but they, they picked exactly the right drink. The whole yeah, thing. they knew what they were doing. Yeah. It certainly changed my opinion about booze, you know. Did you set off on a drinking? Like, did you just drink from? No, no, no. I know ne- I've never been a heavy drinker. No, no, but I have a tiki bar in my house, and I, I fancy myself a minor mixologist. You know, I love, I love like tinkering around, and you know, I can make blue Hawaiians and zombies, and you know, but it's it's mostly for when people come over. I I make them drinks. You know. Yeah. And and I have a signature drink, the Menahuni Mike. You know that I make. You know, three kinds <laughs> like, of rum. What's in, what's in that, or is it secret? Three, three kinds of rum and uh, and and fresh juices. You know. Nice. It's, just, it's it's ple- it's pleasant. It's very pleasant. I've been told. Okay. But uh, you know, no, I, I yeah, I, yeah. But like like to, like fall down drunk. I think twice in my entire life, maybe three times. Wow, so, that's good. Yeah, no, I just never been a heavy drinker. You know, because when you go to drink, you know, you always hear minor threat in your head. You know, da da da. You know, like it's like it gets queued up in your brain. You can hear Ian like, oh, right, right. oh I'm, I'm sorry. You know, so you <laughs> you feel guilty if you. Oh yeah, you when go you're against when the you're code. a straight edge kid. I mean, God forbid you would take drugs. I've never even you know. Yeah. When I, when I was 27, I was living out here for years, and there was this guy Dan Poppy, and he got me to smoke pot. He talked me into it, and I. I, uh, he was like, you have to come on. You know, I'm like, no, I don't want, you know, and, uh, you know, and what, what a lightweight, you know, like the, the first time I, you know, I, I the first time I, I think, uh, you know, like I'm looking at a poster of David Bowie or something and I'm like, he's talking, I could see him like, t- you know, just like crazy hallucinate, you know, like I was looking into like a candle and it looked like the Rockettes were performing in, I'm like, you know, I, like tripping, like people do on acid, but from like, you know a little bit of pot and everyone's like, my God, I wish I could get that high, you know? And, right. like, and I was like, I hate this. I hate it. You know? <laughs> yeah. The person who you think you're envying is always having the worst time. Yeah, no, I hate yeah. it. You know? And I said, no, I, I don't, I just don't, ugh. you know, I, 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 I famously dislike marijuana, you know, but I have, I have tried it and I just, I get so, insanely high you know it's like, i hate it i hate it 
Well, when I was living in the city, the last place I lived in 1995, 96, I moved uh, to the East Bay. You know, I came over and I lived in Alameda for three years and then I've been in Oakland for 21 years. But the last place I lived in the city, my girlfriend at the time was friends with the filmmaker Sarah Jacobson. And she came over and showed this Manor Astro Man video that she directed. And it was like that brief window where I was like, you know, playing around with pot a little bit and uh, you know i smoked some pot and 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 like so she's showing this video and i'm like my hands are dug into the couch like i'm hanging on for dear life and i'm watching this video and, I, and i'm and i'm thinking that i'm going through space like thousands of miles an hour and i was like oh mike jesus oh my god like you know like that you're making the face like you know you see footage of like you know someone on a rocket sled or something and i'm like oh you know, like barely yeah like don't give that guy pot like don't do it you know it's like such a, like, un- unbelievable lightweight no i i hate it you know so yeah i, I you know i can count on it i i, I want to I, I would love to tell you one hand but i think it's two hands i can count how many times i smoke pot and I, I really hate it i'm just really not good i'm very very bad at it, but, or maybe very good at it. You know, I mean, uh, it depends on I, your, yeah, I think you're exceptionally good at it. You, okay, well, you thank just, you very much, but I, you I'm barely about, need it. Yeah. But I'm not about to do it, you know? So. Right. Well, that's I've, never, take, I've never taken acid either because Tim Yohannan, the aforementioned Tim Yohannan, uh, basically made me swear to him that I would never try acid, you know? And, oh. um, Joseph Pope was there from the band Angst. Joe Pope, uh, we were we were at the Covered Wagon Saloon. He was like, look, you know, you don't need it. You never, blah, 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 blah. And Joseph Pope, they got in this really heated argument. And he's like, why would you not let him experience it? Well, you know, he needs, and he's like, and, and, and Tim was like, whatever it does to your mind, whatever, however expands it, he already has that. He's already expanded his mind. He doesn't need to, do, you know. And, and they got into this really heated thing. And I thought, God, you know, Tim's so passionate about this. It was at a lay thugs show. I totally remember the whole night you know and, and, what, and what do you think i mean was that his only stance or was he concerned that it would know. do he something done, to you he had done lsd a lot and in fact he was like a big big time draft dodger you know he was like a lot older than us he was you know his his he spent the whole sick you know late 60s and early 70s trying to get out of the vietnam war and he would fast and he would go in like he would shit himself when he went into the draft board or he would be mm-hmm. tripping he would take acid he would be you know he would do anything he could to get out of going to, to vietnam you know and he he became like a this you know genius of getting out of the draft you know and uh it, it, and and so he took acid many times. So he was he was he was coming from a place. I don't know. He, there's something about my personality where he was like, "You do, you don't need it." And to this day, I never I, I've never done it. And um, well, he's I probably right. I mean, he probably I mean, saw you, make a, you make a promise to somebody, and you, that's it. You know, and he's dead. And what am I going to do? I mean, I'm not the kind of person like he's dead now. I can do it. You know, like oh well, boy. Do you I, feel do you feel any sort of longing to do it? No, God, what to take acid? No, yeah. of course not. Okay, no. well then, that, then it's a done deal. You don't need right, to right. No, it. God, no, no. I don't want to try. God, you know, I remember reading a thing about um, Pete Townsend was saying when he did heroin, he's like, you know, I wish I never did because 
after that, everything is terrible. And just putting on your shoes is like the most miserable, horrible, you know, because once you know, like what the high is and the attainable high, like the world becomes horribly mundane. And, and I'm like, oh my God, I don't want every day to suck. You know, I don't want it because I'm not on heroin. Like, it's just, I mean, that's, you know, you know what? I've never smoked a cigarette either, Justin. And, wow. and, and the reason is, and I'll tell you exactly why. We were in school and they showed like, remember like film scripts, they would come in with a film script, you know, like, like, you know, the projector and everything, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and there was this thing and it's like, this is the human lung. And they like, they throw a lung down on the table and it's, you know, a big pink lung. And then they were like, and this is a smoker's lung. And it was like about half the size and it was black. It looked like a lump of coal. And they put that down and I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm like, I will never smoke a cigarette. And I never have, you know, like that, just seeing what I'm, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know why, but thank God I was born with that kind of sense, you know, like Jesus, if that's what it does to your lung, why on earth would I do it? You know, no amount of, no amount of standing around looking cool is worth like your lung turning black, you know? So it just. That's like, pretty amazing that it worked that it really did. I wonder how what percentage of kids respond that way. Well, you know, my mother always said, my mom who died last year, you know, we were we were close. She would go to punk shows and she was really friendly with like GBH and the exploited and stuff. Actually, she's she's thanked on GBH records. It's crazy, you know. She was she was like the punk mom, you know, she's really all the kids loved her and everything, and she would yeah. defend them. Oh man. If anyone was like those punk rockers, she's like, shut up, you don't know, they're good kids, you know. Like that's she, great. It was that mom, you know, but she uh she she would always say, Michael, only dopes use dope. And, and you know, and, and, and I, so I never did, you know, like, and, and everyone's like, who listens to their mother? I'm like, I don't know, but it saved me a lot of money and heartache, you know. I mean, well, I was, and it turns out probably a lot of other things, too, because it sounds like it doesn't do well in your your well, brain. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, I, yeah, at no point was I like selling my records to get cocaine or, you know, whatever people do. You yeah. know, like I, just, I, I was able to. I mean, you know, that's the other thing. Like, you're paying money to, like, damage yourself. It didn't make sense, you know? ask you a little bit more about living in such a tiny town but it might be too much to, well, to cover well um, i mean i i'm happy to answer anything you want to say 
Well, I don't. I didn't really have a specific question. I'm just. I'm just always curious about. Well, okay. So basically, you know, my you just my, know everybody. I, I was born like totally out of wedlock, right? And uh, I never knew who my dad was. And uh, I met my dad last year, the same week that my mother died. Okay. Whoa. And he and they live in the same town. You know, <laughs> so like my yeah. dad, my biological father was in the same town with me. My whole young life, but I didn't know, you know, so that's like, so that's, you know, so I do have like that scandalous small town who, you know, did everybody else know, you know, the whole, sorry, did the whole town know and you didn't, I don't think so. No, I, well, certainly my, my, my mother's sisters knew and my uncle, you know, they're different people knew. Sure. But, but, uh, you know, see my mother had, she, uh, she used to date this guy who was, get this, a traveling rodeo cowboy, okay? Nice. And he and he, uh, he got her pregnant, and she had a baby, and that's my sister Carol, okay? So in 1962, she got pregnant, and then she had to go to Catholic charities, you know, with the nuns or, you know, like that John Waters movie, you're going on a hayride, and go, it's raining, you know, like <laughs> this horrible nightmarish place that she had to go to, and the nuns would make you, you're on your knees all day, oh, forgive me, oh, I'm so bad, you know? Right. Anyway, she gave up the baby, and that was my sister Carol. Anyway, she ended up moving to; she was adopted by family in uh, Freeport, PA. She was like forty-five minutes away from us. Get this: we went to the we went to the same concerts. We were in the same room at the same time, but I didn't know I had a sister. Finally, oh, when I was thirty, uh, my mom flew out here for my thirtieth. I had a big party, and, uh, and my mom flew out and everything. And I'm like, "Are you ever going to tell me who my dad is?" You know, and she told me the story. And, you know, they, it was, you know, like they met in a bar and it was one night only. And that is it. You know, they never dated, but, but wow. because my mother had been pregnant before with my sister, um, she wasn't allowed to date. You know, it brought all this shame to the family, you know, cause it's 1962, right? She's not married. Ooh, she's pregnant. She had to go live with the nuns. And after that, my, my overbearing Italian grandfather was like, you cannot date. That's it. No boys for you. So when she hooked up with my biological father, she hid it. So she hid the pregnancy for nine months from her sister, her twin sister, who she slept in the same bed with. She hid, she hid the pregnancy. How the hell did she do that? Well, she just, cause she was a big girl and, yeah. and it was, it was, you know, she weighed a couple hundred pounds. She just did it. So the, the, uh, the circumstances of my birth, the circumstances of how I came into the, the world are really crazy, you know? And then her water broke and her twin, my aunt Janet is like, what is going on? She's, and she said, I'm having a baby right now. Jesus. And my aunt's like, holy, you know, so they, so they went, that's why I was born in McKeesport and not nearby Jeanette or Greensburg. We went further out to McKeesport because my aunt Sally, uh, who was my, my, uh, you know, maternal grandmother's sister and my mother's godmother, she, she, she knew she would take us in because she knew we wouldn't be allowed to come back into the house if she had a baby. So this is how scandalous, like, you know, and again, small town, like, you know, it's like this crazy. So, yeah. So like, you know, I'm happy to tell you about all that stuff. It's really crazy though, because, you know, and then, and then we went and we went and we lived in Portview, which is next to McKeesport. And we were there with my aunt Sally and then my uncle Louie, who was the older brother of my grandfather, Tony, it's Tony, you know, it's Tony, Louis, Vito. I mean, it's, it's, it's Dominic. It's as, it's as Italian as you can imagine, you know, it's just every cliche, you know, 
Yeah. And, and so Louis got groceries, my uncle Louis, and he shamed my grandfather. He's like, he's like, that's your grandson, Tony. You have to take care of him. If you won't, if you won't pay to feed him, I will. And he dropped off like groceries, like to shame my grandfather. And then my grandfather reluctantly let me, my mother move back in with me. So that's, that's how I came into this world, you know? So it was wow. controversy right away, you know? <laughs> so it's like, but did you grow up feeling that or did well, you? Yeah, I had no idea who my dad was. I mean, like every kid in school drew, you know, here's our house, you know, with the smoke and the, you know, stick figures, dad, mom, brother, sister, dog. I had nothing like that. You know, I lived with my mother and her twin, my aunt Tootsie, who I'm still very close with my mother's younger sister. And then uh, my grandfather. So I grew up in this house of adults. There's no kids around. Uh, which in a weird way was cool. Cause you know, my aunt Janet was really into the Beatles and the beach boys and played records all the time. My aunt Tootsie was my soul aunt, you know, Stax, Volt, Motown, Tamla, loved soul, played it all the time. My mom was into like, you know, Ella Fitzgerald and, and stuff like that. And then, and then, and, and then right across the street, my cousin Mary was like the teeny bopper and she was into the monkeys and all that stuff. And I was getting it from everywhere. I was just like li listening to all this music from all these adults. And at no point was there like kitty records and, you know, a bunch of kids doing the hokey pokey. It was like, you know, I was listening to, you know, like Rufus Thomas or whatever. Right. So it was like that, straight that, into the adult world. Yeah. I was, yeah. Yes. I was straight into the adult world. I never thought like a kid. I never, you know, and I remember being a kid and like, God damn it. I can't wait till I'm old old enough to get out of, you know, I just wanted yeah, to, I, I just really, I just really always wanted to be an adult, you know? And, and then, you know, then you get there and you're like, eh, this is all right, I guess, but you yeah, know, I'm not going to do I'm, this forever. Right. Do this I'm, for the rest of my days. Yeah. I'm pretty nostalgic about like, you know, especially like my early teens and stuff. My friends were older and they had cars and, you know, one friend had a Camaro, one friend had a Monte Carlo, you know, the one neighbor got, you know, had a, had a super B another neighbor had a, a GTX and it was, it was a muscle car era and they were everywhere and I loved it. And I got to ride around in them and hang out and, you know, we would listen to, you know, Kansas or whatever, yeah. rack, you know, Molly hatchet, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm really nostalgic about that time because I wasn't paying taxes, you know, and I was working for my uncle. He had a carnival business and I would set up tents and like work a, bounce castle you know we called it a jupiter jump and i would get paid like two bucks an hour to take tickets and kids would jump and you would go okay time's up and then come you know right. i was at and then i would immediately take that money and buy van halen tickets or whatever <laughs> you know so yeah I, i'm really i'm really like like remarkably nostalgic about that time and i had a girlfriend too and like i was one of the guys me and my friend jimbo were getting laid and i don't think a lot of the other guys were i really don't you know but we were you know so from like 15 on i was had like this you know, really sexy, you know, girlfriend and, 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 you know, all that and had some dough and, you know, always worked and always went to concerts and, you know, so it's really like, you know, and then, you know, and then when I moved, even though it was like punk rock into a punk rock house with people who are like, here, Mike, read William Burroughs here, Mike, you might enjoy, you know, like, Hey, yeah. listen to this, this crazy band called can or what, you know, like that stuff was coming at me from all. And I still had to like, come up with rent and work and you know you know you know what i mean adulthood came in pretty quick you know like it's like the day you move out like everything really does change you know like hey my laundry isn't done for me anymore you know like suddenly there's no food in the cupboard you know so yeah you, know, you have to you know you had to like so like that year even though i i would say it's the most pivotal year of my life 83 you know eight when i was 18 just because because of all the the culture and counterculture that i was 
hip to, you know, it was great. But at the same time, like, you know, I had to grow up like almost like immediately, you know, and yeah. oh my dad and my stepdad died that year. So in, in 1975, my mother actually got married. So from 64 to 75, my grandfather died in 70. And then it was just me and my mom lived in the house for years. And she married this guy from Iowa. He was a truck driver, Bob. And uh, we never really got along great, but, you know, he provided for us. He had a good job. Things got a lot easier for my mother. She didn't have to work seven days a week anymore. She was a day worker. She cleaned houses for 10 bucks a day, not an hour, a day, Whoa. like $10 a day. But, but you know, we always got by because macaroni and cheese was four boxes for a buck or whatever. You know, yeah. we, we, we just got by, you know, and, 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 and you learn to be resourceful. You know, you learn to stretch things. You learn to, you know, so I'm kind of thankful for that, but you know, uh, he died. Like I moved out on January 2nd, 1983. And he died on January 25th. Like he didn't even live one month. He had this massive heart attack and died while my mother was in the hospital getting a hysterectomy. So I had to like go to the funeral home, pick out the casket, make the arrangements. I'm like 18 years old. You grow up quick, you know, when yeah. you're thrown into situations like that. And then, you know, and that, 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 that was probably some of the anger with the punk rock thing too, you know, just like, why me? Why did it, why is all this like this, you know? But yeah. so, you know, I didn't have a typical, you know, but in, in the small town, you know, there were like bullies and, you know, and they knew, and when they found out that I went to see Devo, Oh, Ooh. You know, you have it. Yeah. Like, you know, they would put like snuff out in my hair, you know, they mm. would walk by with their big chew and just smash it in my hair or put gum in my hair and you know, like that kind of stuff. Like really. And at one point I had to fight back and I just picked the one dude and punched him and knocked him down. And then he got up and just beat the hell out of me. <laughs> but, 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 you know, Justin, that's the last fight I was in. I haven't been in a fight since 1981. And when you consider that I was in the hardcore scene, so deeply for so long with skinheads all around and you know boneheads stupid you know all yeah. that goofy and i never got in a fight and i'm so proud of that you know yeah, I, could you always, should be. I could always jedi mind trick my way out of you know the, this is we're not the band you want to fight these exactly. are these are the guys we want to fight you know yeah. like that, you know <laughs> i could always like you know I, I i if you can talk if you can talk you can survive you know what i mean if you yeah. can talk a good game, if you can bullshit your way out of anything. So, yeah, so my 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 growing up, my small town experience was unique, I guess, because of this. You have the circumstances of my birth and then you have like the poverty and all that. And, and then you have, you know, trying to put that all together. Then my mother gets married and there was like a lot of competition there. I think he was really jealous of the relationship we had. We were very close, you know, but, you know, Italian mother and her son, you know, she's, you know. Yeah. was very, you know, I could really do no wrong, you know? Right. And, uh, and, uh, you know what, I'll tell you one story and then we'll stop. This is really good. Uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, the misfits broke up. It was, um, their last show was on Halloween, 1983. And I was 18 and, um, I wanted to get a misfits tattoo because get this, I was afraid that like people would forget who they were. <laughs> so I was like, That's awesome. like, I was like, I got to get a misfits. I have to. So, you know, I, I go, so I, so I go home and I'm getting, I'm doing laundry and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and my mom, I'm like, mom, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. Silence. Looks at me. I carried you for nine months. <laughs> right. So I know I'm going to get it. I, how I prayed that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be deaf. You wouldn't be blind. You hit, she goes, and then finally you came out a boy. Perfect. 
10 fingers, 10 toes, beautiful blue eyes, how I bathed you, how I, you know, like this laying it on, man, like the most like Catholic Dago guilt you could ever imagine, you know, like this whole thing, you know, and and now you want to get a needle under your skin and ruin and destroy, and, you know, and, 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 and the funny thing is, she goes, and you probably want to get like a skull, which is exactly what I the misfits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so anyway, so, you know, so I, of course, me being me, I think nothing of this. I go and get the tattoo. I come home, show her. You know what she says? Michael, I am so proud of you. Because <laughs> that is the first thing you ever did as a man without my permission. I am so proud. So, it, it, but, wow. but, but, but what is that really saying, Justin? Like, you can't do wrong. You know what I mean? Pretty like, much, I, went, yeah. I went completely in defiance of her, and she completely flipped it around and made it into something she was not only okay with, but proud of. You know, do you, so do you think that, that was her intent all along, or do you think that that's just I how she adapted? No, no, no. She was probably trying to talk me out of it. You know, like yeah. you know, I mean, who had tattoos back then? It wasn't. This is 1983, man. This isn't like, you know, there wasn't a tattoo parlor on every corner. There were two people in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that did tattoos. You know, there was Craig and Moose. There was a guy named Moose, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I went to Craig. I went to you Island. Went to Craig. Yeah, yeah, I went to the good guy. You know. Yeah, 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 but but it were the better of the two, certainly. But uh, I, yeah, think I don't think I want to get my tattoo from Moose. Either. You should see some of the messed up Moose tattoos that people have. You know, I still I still see them. I don't see them like, boy, is that a Moose? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> like wow. <Yeah. laughs> and then great. and then of course, like anything else, Pittsburgh got amazing tattoo artists and tattoo. You know, I I yeah. I just got one when I was back there in 2019. You know, my friend Brian Corley. Has a you know is great and he gave me you know so it's but but you know it's just it's just just, I mean I just I just wanted to tell you that because that's that really you know and she died uh, April thirteenth of last year and she was eighty and you know so this whole last year you know like it's I've had a lot of time to think about it you know COVID came at exactly that you know there's not a lot open not a lot to do and I was I've really been able to think about you know, that and that relationship. And it's pretty special. You know, it really is like when you, when you have one person that loves you like that, you, you could pretty much get through anything. You know what I mean? I think like, you're right. When you have that much unconditional love from one source and, you know, and, and my aunt Tootsie certainly loves me that much. And a lot of my, a lot of my relatives are just, you know, they're really behind me in that way. And I, I have such good friends, but man, when you have a mother like that, it's, it's, it's good, you know, and she lived to be 80, you know, I was 55. That's a good run. You know, a lot of people don't have their parents in, until their mid fifties. You know, and so I, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the, all the, you know, all that stuff, all the time we had, all the stuff. I went there. You know, we moved her out of the house. I got all my stuff out. You know, I got all the cool stuff I wanted. We had time to go through everything, and then she went to a retirement place, and then kind of, you know, died right after that. So she was only there for a very short time. But I think that was the greatest gift. Like, come on, come back. Let's go through everything. Let's, you know, and, that, sure. and that was great. I'm really glad we got to do that. I didn't get blindsided with like, oh my God, I got this whole huge, cause she lived in the same house for 79 years, man, 79 years. Wow. She never moved. So there was a lot of stuff in that house. You know, it was a big 11 room, four bedroom, big house, full yeah. packed, you know, and we, and we, we cleaned it out. We got through it. We did it, you know? So um, I'm glad, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it all, it, you know, it ended as, as well as it could really, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. So, all right, man. Is that good? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we're good. Thanks so much for talking and for oh, yeah. taking, taking the time. And there's a, I know there's a lot there, man. It's been a, I packed a lot in, you know, you did. Yeah. I'll, uh, I might, I'll have to shorten it a bit. Oh, but, um, sure. Of course. But I'm, I'll, uh, I'm yeah, I, I always, I, you know, when I, when I wrote for Thrasher, I was always, my thing was always like st- have a real good, strong beginning and end strong. And then in the middle, let them take out whatever they want. You know, just, you, yeah. <laughs> you know, I like, that's like, that's always the editing, like start strong end strong. Then, you know, whatever they edit, it still looks decent, you know, like yeah, give, them a lot. give them more than they need, you know? Cool. Thank you. Okay. Sure. All right, Mike. Well, thank, thanks again. Oh, you're and, welcome. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, hang in there. You too. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was Mike Lavella. And thank you, Mike, for coming on and sharing some stuff about yourself. I'm always happy to meet someone new and learn a little something about how they see the world. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what I've been up to or not been up to lately. Uh, Is anyone else experiencing this uh, malaise and just absolute lack of volition or any kind of ambition hmm I hope I hope I'm not alone and yet I hope I am alone I wouldn't wish this on anyone and I don't know I know some of it is COVID related and just the fact that I, I've I lead a hermit's life and I'm even more isolated than I already was for many many years uh, so it's weird it's a it's a my, I feel like my life has gotten small and that's not anything I ever intended I wouldn't want that for anyone I think we should all be out expanding into the world and interacting with each other and uh, sharing ideas and thoughts and hopes and dreams and all that cliche stuff that actually is meaningful um, and I want to return to a life where that's what's most meaningful and not making money or doing you know achieving some status or gaining possessions or any of that stuff the reason i'm talking about this is because i feel like i'm having an existential crisis uh, because i don't feel like i want to participate in a lot of what this society has to offer um and i want it to change and I'm sort of fearful that it won't, uh, or at least not quickly enough for me to be able to enjoy it or for my daughter to live in a world that makes some kind of sense. Because I don't think that much of what we're doing makes sense at this present moment in time. Uh, anyway, I've been depressed. I've been low energy. I've been, uh, unmotivated as I said and as a result the episodes are taking longer I can't like sometimes the last thing I want to do is hear my own voice so the idea of editing uh, uh, makes me cringe and you know I'm on a journey toward learning to love myself and it's taken a long time and I'm still working on it so I don't know why I feel so guilty and ashamed and 
mad at myself for decisions I made, but that's what I've been uh, slogging through lately. And it's not pleasant, but it is necessary. And I will come out the other side better off, I believe. Well, that sure is enough about me. Uh, I love you guys. Thanks for listening. And by guys, I mean everybody in the world, no matter how you identify. So I plan to be in a better state of mind and a better state of functioning uh, before too long, I hope. And uh, so the episodes will become more frequent again someday. Thank you for bearing with me as I navigate these uh, choppy waters. If you would like to support this show, uh, which is free for all and advertisement free, um, you can do so over at patreon.com slash I love you anyway. And Patreon is this cool uh, site that allows creators to connect with their audience directly and uh, you join at whatever tier you're comfortable with and I give you rewards for joining and it's hopefully good for both of us it's definitely good for me and I definitely appreciate those of you who are uh, who have become patrons thank you and thank you all you're doing a great job keep it up Nobody's better at being you than you are. So you always got that. All right. Love you. Talk to you soon. Bye.